This is a strange time with lots of pressures and stress. I can't make it all disappear, of course, but I can offer you a way to stay hopeful, grounded, and focused for the new year. It's called Productivity Tools 2021. Simple strategies to help you be calm, mindful, relaxed, and productive. Themes include a working-at-home self-assessment, startup and shutdown routines, three ways to use fasting for clarity, a method to replace bad habits, spring clean-up-your-life tips, and so much more. During December and January only, we are offering a two-for-one special. Get the 2021 Focus Toolkit and all the 2020 organizational tools with their how-to recordings. For only $19.99, you can have two toolkits for the price of one, how-to recordings to get organized, and invitations to 12 months of upcoming Focus tutorials and recordings. But don't wait too long to decide. After January 31st, the price will go up to $27.99 and will only include the 2021 toolkit. So don't miss out on this great deal. Get in on your two-for-one Productivity Tools special right away before the deadline. Go to shiftworkplace.co slash productivity tools. That's shiftworkplace.co slash productivity tools. Hello, Culture and Leadership Podcast listeners. Today, I am honored to bring to you my guest, Dr. Wanda Costin. Dr. Wanda Costin is an academic leader who champions inclusive excellence. Leading with integrity, Dr. Costin eliminates barriers to sustainable change by reimagining how to prepare students for the 21st century life of work and purpose. To accomplish goals, Dr. Costin strategizes with civic and business leaders and campus stakeholders, faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Her collaborative approach synthesizes experiences from the military, private industry, and higher education in the United States and Canada. Wanda Costin earned a PhD in sociology at Washington State University, an EMBA from Pepperdine University, and a BS from the United States Military Academy. She is currently the Dean and Professor of the School of Business at McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta. Welcome, Wanda Costin. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you could join me today. Excited about the discussion. So that was just the formal bio, but I'm wondering if you can tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do. Give us some personal insights. Uh, Yeah, I usually start, especially now that I live in Canada, uh, usually I'm apologizing first and saying uh, I'm a U.S. citizen, so I come from the United States, and this is my first opportunity to live and work in Canada, which I'm quite enjoying. I would say uh, my background comes from, as you said in the intro, uh, three different careers, if you will. And one of the things I like to share with students is I'm an example of their future. Today's students are going to have multiple careers, not jobs, but very distinct careers in ways in which they engage uh, with the economy. And so it's helped for them to see uh, someone who has actually done that herself. Uh, I grew up in the military, mostly overseas. My father was an enlisted service member, uh, 20 plus years of service. And uh, literally, we moved every three to five years. So this need to develop uh, relationships very quickly, make friends quickly, uh, adapt to one's environment became something that's just part of how I move through the world now. Uh, My brothers and I all three say that one of the things that we think distinguishes us as U.S. citizens is our openness to different cultures, primarily because we lived in foreign countries. And that shifts how you view things. It doesn't mean that we're not proud U.S. citizens, 
but it does mean that we're not, as I like to say, arrogant U.S. citizens who think that everything we do in the United States is best. So that's helped a lot. Uh, and then I went to West Point, which is a military school, but I went at a time when women had just uh, really been invited in. And so I am the seventh class of women. So you can imagine, certainly as an African-American woman, that that would be a very unique experience at a time uh, when folks were changing and the country was changing and, and accepting women. As I tell folks, women weren't uh, members of West Point and cadets at West Point because we weren't capable. It's just the system didn't think they needed women who were military leaders and trained at one of the best academic institutions in the world. And then that changed. And so now we have uh, West Point graduates who are women. So those are some of those experiences, I think, that help shape uh, who I am and how I do what I do. And then I spent 10 years in business, again, very eclectic, sales, operations, human resources, a variety of experiences in which I took all of those skills and competencies and put them into play in each stage of my life. And then uh, suddenly I was recruiting at U.S. universities from my company. And someone had the brilliant idea to say, you'd be a great faculty member, you'd be a great professor. And I chuckled at them and said, yeah, I'll do that after I've made a lot of money. I come from a working class family. So we often looked at this notion of how much money one makes as a measure of success. And little did I know that that person would endeavor to uh, invite me to campus. And of course, I actually left my business right when I was interviewing for VP jobs. And I used to tell students and still do, I left something I love to do what I believe is my calling. This is not my occupation. This is my vocation. So that's uh, pretty much how I got here and my openness to explore and to add value in new and different ways anywhere is what led me to Canada. Hmm. That's really great. I don't think you need to apologize because our culture and leadership listenership is all over the world. And they maybe don't realize that there's this sort of rivalry between the United States and Canada, you know, so at any rate, I think that that's great. And I really love all of the courage that I'm hearing in what you've experienced and your openness. So courage and then openness to learn from whatever situation you happen to be in. Yes, thank you. I would say uh, courage is one of those values that I hold really dear. I think it's somewhat interesting that each class at West Point comes up with a class model and they do this very early on. They do this after about an eight-week process. And the class of 86, our model is actually courage never quits 86. And we were, to my knowledge, the first class to have an animal other than the eagle on our class crest. And we have a lion, of course, for courage. So courage has always been one of those uh, terms and values that I hold really dear. I often tell others it, uh, that people want and aspire to be leaders, but they don't realize that to be an effective leader and a high quality leader takes a lot of courage, right? And so I'm not sure people recognize that. And so I'm quite touched that you would hear in my early comments a hint of courage. I think there's a lot of courage there. But I also hear the capacity to reflect on experience and then articulate it in ways that others can benefit from. That's also a gift. And certainly it is your vocation. I can hear it. And for students to be inspired by a dean is just the best. Um, deans that hide in a corner somewhere and people don't even know the name of their dean is, is really not the same thing as someone who is right there with the students. So you already started a little bit with this. I'm certainly curious to find out what countries you lived in as a child, but maybe you have also a couple of incidents from your childhood that you think formed you that you could relate. Yeah, for sure. 
I think that's an interesting way to start, right? Uh, this notion of even as little children, we have experiences that later on in life we realize shape who we are. And thinking back, and it's related to uh, my experience as a dependent in the military, our first time moving to Germany, Bremerhaven, right up on the North Sea, I believe I was like 11 or 12 years old, and we got there. And as you might imagine, Germany is a very different place from the U.S. and speaks a different language. It's an incredibly clean country and very distinct and obviously a lot of history, certainly from World War I and World War II. And so I remember uh, arriving there and being trying to figure out how to make my sense of the world and making friends. And I remember this young boy had come in, his family had arrived, and I'm sure you can appreciate, as can the listeners, that when you're young and you happen to be in a foreign country, that anyone who's like you becomes your friend, right? So all the little kids who are U.S. citizens are all hanging out together. And I'll never forget that this young boy uh, said to all of us, we're hanging outside playing. And he said something to the effect of, well, I'm not going to play with her. And of course, he was pointing at me. And of course, my friends were like, what are you talking about? And little did I know, but he had come from North Carolina, most likely Fort Bragg, which is a major military installation in the United States, but it's in the South. And uh, he said, I'm not playing with her. And I just remember my friends and I looking at each other like, what is this guy talking about? I, didn't, I haven't even done anything to this guy yet, right? And eventually we all just said, well, okay, if you're not going to play with Wanda, you're not going to play with us and good luck with that because you're not going to have any friends. And we just walked away. And as you might imagine, that lasted about a week. And the next thing you knew, he was outside with us and, and kind of begging forgiveness, if you will, uh, to play with us. But that was my first opportunity to understand for some reason how I presented in the world didn't work for everybody, right? I mean, I had never had that experience before in my entire life. I had never had someone look at me or say they didn't want to have anything to do with me just before I'd even done anything to deserve that, right? That kind of response. Uh, and even growing up in Germany, I never felt discriminated against or different. I knew I was a U.S. citizen. I knew I presented differently. But the German community and people with whom I engaged were very warm and welcoming. And I think particularly because my parents were really keen on ensuring that my brothers and I learned the culture, we learned the language, and we really infiltrated into the community. And I remember my mom, again, we come from a working class family. She has a high school a diploma who worked in retail my entire life outside the home uh, to provide for us. She would just say, this is a unique opportunity and you have to take advantage of it. Like get to know the culture, get to know the people. We ate only German foods and we totally embraced that culture. We were very sad to leave when we, when we left five years later. But that was the first incident I can tell you that I remember uh, vividly. And then a second related incident was actually when we were leaving Germany to come back to the United States and we were going to Oklahoma. And I believe I was 15 or 16 years old. And I remember my mom and dad sitting me down and saying, okay, so we need to tell you that you're gonna have a very different experience in Oklahoma. And I laugh at this now because I go, mom, dad, this isn't the 60s, man. This is the 70s. Everything is fine. What are you talking about? And of course, uh, they were just saying, well, we're just telling you, you know, it might be different. And of course, I don't know what they're talking about. I really don't know what they're talking about. In the military, 
while certainly it's a uh, microcosm of society, it's such a, a bureaucracy and not that racism and sexism doesn't, homophobia, all those isms, don't infiltrate into the systemic part and operations of how it organizes. But really, it's less so because people don't have time to be concerned about your cut. Like, can you do your job? And if we go to war, are you going to cover me? Right? We don't really have time to worry about what you look like. But can you do your job and can you do it well? And so I really was unprepared for that. And we landed in Lawton High. I'll never forget it. And it was an interesting time. There were three high schools in Lawton. Lawton High was the middle uh, class school, if you will. And it's where all the military kids from the military base went. And then Eisenhower, ironically, was the wealthy school. That's where all the wealthy kids went. And MacArthur was literally, it's the first time I understood the term on the wrong side of the tracks, because it literally was across railroad tracks. And that was where the blacks and Latinos lived. And here I was in Lawton High, which was quite diverse, ethnically and racially. And I just remember I didn't fit in. And, And it occurred to me, the white kids didn't talk to me because I was black and the black ads didn't talk to me because they thought I was quote unquote acting white. You may remember back in, I think it was 2008 when president Obama made that kind of comment that he wanted to live in an America where a black kid carrying books and reading books wasn't quote unquote acting white. And that's what happened to me. I arrived in Lawton high able to, I was, I was completely fluent in German. I grew up in a foreign country um, quite confident. I was an athlete. I was smart. I was academically oriented. And that just was a foreign concept to them. And I didn't fit in. And it was a whole year. I had one dear friend uh, who, before I really started to develop friendships. And I will confess that I think it's because I was an athlete that that happened quicker, right? People just started to see, oh, that's just Wanda. And even later in life, in my late 20s, I met a dear friend who was one of my best friends to this day. And her favorite line used to be, don't mind Wanda, she just fell out of the sky and happened to be black. Right? Because I was just this different person with these different experiences. And she would just say, I don't understand her, but this is just who she is, Uh, just taking me as I am. And so those two incidents, I have to tell you, were really foundational in this recognition of myself as an African-American and as someone who might have different experiences from that. But I have to say, my mom did that very early on. She was, my mom is a very pragmatic individual and her goal, like most moms' goals, is to ensure that her kids are prepared for the real world. And she used to say to us constantly, look, I'm toughening you up because it's hard out there. And you just need to know that you're gonna have to work harder, you're gonna have to be better, just to be considered, just for people to take you at face value. That will never happen for you. And so this sense of constantly striving, working hard, trying to be the best, because it was expected. This is really great. Um, I would like to make a little bit of a comment on your first and second incident. The first one, what a gift, what occurred to me when you were speaking, what a gift it was that you were in a family and an environment where you could develop confidence without having to experience racism at a young age. And then by the time you're 11, you're going, this is just weird. What's the matter with these people? And your friends supported you, another gift, so that the collective will, and when the collective will and culture has developed to be inclusive, it draws the elements in that would have been divisive earlier. But if it were a divisive culture, then that would have just made it worse. 
So I think that that's really wonderful that you had that as a first experience because it certainly gave you some legs to get to the next experience when you had a whole year of being so othered <laughs> by, the, by the people around you who just couldn't see anything uh, because they had no clue what you'd experienced and what you lived and they just couldn't fit you into any box, right? So um, yeah, this, those are great. And I'm also really appreciating your parents being pragmatic and helping you to think in advance, this could be different. This is something you might need to prepare for. And that preparedness, I think, is also seems to be a part of who you are, right? Did I get that right so far? You're right on point. And I do think that it was a gift. I, I love how you've characterized that, that these experiences can shape a person. And I'm blessed that it was the military because again, even on a military base, it's a community. You bond together. And as little kids, I, I, you, you clearly know this, right? Racism is taught. It's a learned behavior. Oh, kids, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. They have to be told about race. They don't see it. They might see it, but they see it as an interesting thing they'd like to know more about, typically, unless they've been taught otherwise. I remember um, when my kids were little, I had three, of them, I have four, but I had three at the time, and my, my oldest was five. And we had a friend who was a very accomplished uh, black woman from the U.S. who was a close friend of our family. And she was there one day, and my oldest son sat next to her, and he said, do you mind if I lick your arm? And she said, what? And he said, you just look so delicious. <laughs> 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 she said, go ahead. And he looked and he said, oh, I was expecting chocolate. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So from the groups you were born into, and you were born into the military, you were born into a family that you've characterized as being a middle class, a uh, working class family, uh, and then all the US and then lived in Germany. From those groups that you were born into or that you were just catapulted into, what would you say has most influenced your sense of culture and self right now? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm, I'm blessed that I'm a sociologist because as a, a grad student in my early 30s, um, I actually contemplated this in a, in a course. And I thought, wow, how, what's most important? Like what's in primacy for me? <laughs> and I was surprised to learn that this has shifted over time because at the time I thought being a woman in my early to mid thirties when I was in grad school, I thought being a woman was how I identified first. And I said that because I viewed it from what irritates me, what frustrates me. And I realized that it was all these slights to women that were just sending me over the deep end. Now, I think some of that was because I was a West Pointer, right? Mm -hmm. And at West Point, there are so few women, it was in your face every day. And mm -hmm. you were constantly trying to prove that you belonged and you didn't want to do anything that some other woman might have to pay for, right? Like, oh, that's just another example of how they don't belong here. And then clearly my race. I would say those have shifted now, and maybe it's the times, but I would say I identify first now as a black person and then as a woman. But the two other areas, as I think about it, that were arguably choice, even though I was raised this way, it's, it became a choice for me, is my faith. Now, I was raised Catholic, and I unfortunately uh, left the Catholic Church a number of years ago with Pope Benedict, uh, probably because I had such hope that we would become a more inclusive faith as opposed to go back to the 1950s. And then, uh, obviously, the military, which was a choice I made later, but, you know, by going to West Point, but almost seemed like just a natural progression, to be honest with you. I, I did not know West Point was what it was. And so I was quite surprised to get there and realize just how elite it was and how prestigious. And I had no clue. I just thought it was military school. So I always warn people that sometimes ignorance is a good thing. You just go do stuff without even realizing you should be worried or you might not get in. 
So of those, I would say uh, my race shapes a lot because it shapes my lived experiences and how I'm treated because I move through the world often without displaying my earned privilege. And I'm very blessed to have a lot of earned privilege. I said to someone just this week, I recognize that I have the privilege of buying my way out of racism. And Mm -hmm. I often do that. You know, that is a really profound statement. (laughs) I really, uh, I'm very struck by what you're just saying, because it is true that you do. I interviewed Andy Knight, who works, um, who's a black professor at the University of Alberta in um, peace and conflict studies. He is the go-to person for the United Nations when any conflict comes up. He's done all sorts of work on uh, child soldiers and things like that. And he said something similar because he's a talented musician and artist in addition to being a great orator and writer and everything. He said his talent, his education has given him the, this privilege to move through racism in ways that other people can't. And uh, so, but I think the way that you said that is just so, so poignant. Yes. And, and the reason it's important I say it is because certainly my white friends, but I, I lived 10 years in um, Tennessee in the South, deep South. And the number of students who, when I would say things like, like I put on armor before I leave my home to prepare for what's going to hit me during the day, Mm -hmm. right? The rebel flag, all of that stuff. And they would be emotionally upset when I would share some of my experiences. And they'd say, that's just not right. You're an amazing professor. You're my mentor. And I'd say, but what you don't understand is If I'm having these experiences with all of my privilege, what is happening to the average black person in the United States? Exactly. Who's just working or worse, poor. Mm -hmm. What are they experiencing? And of course, we now know, don't we? They're dying. That's right. Literally, right? Yeah. For no other reason than the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. The stress, I read an article a few, I just, I think two or three years ago about the heart conditions and race. And it turns out that um, uh, black men in the United States, their heart rate never goes down even when they're sleeping. Um, I don't know if they did the same tests on women, but they're looking at other people. They're trying to see what the difference was. And it turned out that basically, you know, when you're in a racist environment every single second of of the day, and you always have to put on your armor, like you said, you just can't ever let your guard down. You can never relax. And so it has huge effects on your heart, hence a much higher rate of uh, heart ailments and heart conditions and heart attacks among black men in the U.S. Absolutely. It's a heightened sense of awareness all the time. You never get to turn it off. Heightened fear, heightened having to defend yourself, just being aware all the time. And when people don't get that, it's they've been in a bubble for sure. But it's good that you can explain it. And probably you can explain it more clearly to people because you've lived in many different countries and you know what that feels like. Absolutely. Well, even here in, in Canada, you know, I, I'm very candid with folks in Canada and said, look, let me be clear. I'm treated far better as a visible minority and a woman here in Canada than I am in my home country. And it's embarrassing to say that. It's hurtful to say that. Those are the facts, right? But I've been saying to my Canadian friends, look, y'all are being a little arrogant and pointing south of the 49. But let me tell you this, racism doesn't abide by some imaginary line we drew calling a border. Okay, so rest assured, there is racism up here, and it just may be subtle. And some of the things I've talked about here on campus has been, let me point out to you that Canadians are so unwilling to explore this possibility 
that until very recently, StatsCan didn't even collect data by race, as if somehow the way one presents in the world doesn't influence their lived experiences and outcomes. But it does. At least in the U.S., we know this, right? And we've got the data to support it. That's because if you name it, you have to do something about it. It's just really easy to say, you know, I'm a good person and we've all been a good people in a good country and not be willing to put in the work. It takes work. Tom Harris said something really, really great that I heard today on the, on the radio. She said, uh, there's no vaccine for racism. You have to be ready to do the work. Yes, she did. That was in her acceptance speech. Yeah, that was beautiful. I really like that. So you talked about groups that you were born into and how you identified and then Later on, that shifted. Would you say there's some aspects of the places that you lived into that you might have adopted into who you are? I know you're in military um, and, and in military environment in Germany, but still you were pretty much embedded in the culture there too. Is there something from the German culture that's affected you, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, many people look at it as being uh, military, but actually it was developed because Germans are very direct. They're mm-hmm. very straightforward, right? My obsession with cleanliness, right? Um, and forthrightness comes from Germans. Um, mm-hmm. And they have an intense ability to do things well. Uh, my punctuality. Uh, I used to warn people that when they go to Germany, if it says that the Straßenbahn is coming at 12.03, you better be there 1203 because if you come at 1205, you will have missed it. Like literally, it's a punctuality and cleanliness and presentation of self, right? How things are presented, everything neat and in its place and things operating well. Yeah, I think all of that came very early on. And to be fair, clearly not something I would have noticed as a youngster because that was just the way it was supposed to be. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about personality and temperament. So temperament, you're born with personality. All those obstacles you overcame and your education and what you've made of yourself is your personality. So what would you say you're born with? Is that different from your personality now or the same? Yeah, and it's hard. You know, I'm 57 now, so it's hard sometimes to think back to what I might have been like, you know, under five or what have you. But what I can say, my parents have been kind enough to share occasionally the odd school report, right, report cards and comments that were on there. And I chuckle because even at five, some of who I am was already there. So this notion that I am incredibly gregarious and outgoing and an extrovert, the fact that I have really great verbal communication skills, that was evident when I was little because the teachers would make these comments, right? And she's fluttering around the classroom. And once she's done with her work, she's disrupting others. And of course, my logic was, well, if I'm done, isn't everybody done? (laughs) And we're just going to hang out and have a good time. Um, So clearly, those are some things I think are part of my temperament. And I think the personality piece, as we were just sharing, uh, most people find me very direct, but also very caring and compassionate. It doesn't perhaps come out the way they might think. But as they get to know me, I'm someone who feels very deeply and tries to be very empathetic. I'm also incredibly transparent and accountable. I really work hard to present my authentic self. And that has developed over time. Uh, I remember in my mid-20s, I was working for Pepsi in Phoenix at the time. And a group of friends totally blew me away and threw me a 30th birthday. I had no clue. I don't don't know how they pulled it off, but I was totally clueless. And after that, one of my dear friends said to me, 
that he'd been approached by someone who'd been invited and said, I really want to get Wanda something uh, for her. And he said, whatever you do, don't get anything for that person you see at work. Because I literally was two different people. It was, here's who I need to be at work, but here's who I am for real. I had, I had almost a split personality, right? And I remember as I matured thinking, how do I do this? And I remember one of my best friends when I was moving into a middle management position responsible for a whole region at Greyhound. And I had this epiphany, like, what if I'm not as good as I think I am? And she says, oh, you're really sharp. But the best advice I can give you is to bring all of you to work. Every piece of who you are, bring that to work. Don't try to compartmentalize. And that's when the shift started to happen, right? That sense of authenticity. Uh, so people and students have seen me cry. They've seen me angry. They've seen me happy. Uh, they've seen me bear a lot of angst. But that's real, and that's who I am. So I think those pieces, as part of my personality, have developed over time from life experience. Hmm. I really like it. It's the process of becoming a more integrated, whole and authentic person. I completely agree. Mm. So something you've mentioned a few times, so I just wanted to bring it up. You have mentioned dear friends and best friends quite a few times already. Tell me a little bit about friends and friendship in your life. Yeah, I would say uh, I'm a single person. I've always been single, although I'm an adoptive mom. And I just believe that at the end of the day, we are social beings, and this notion of how important it is for me to connect in real, deep, meaningful ways to others. And I would say that one of the biggest challenges I've had here in Edmonton is I relocated for this employment opportunity and jumped in with both feet and really for two years, really just pushed it. So much so, unfortunately, that of late I have said to people, you know, I've been working in Edmonton. I don't live in Edmonton because all of my time is around work and that's not healthy. And I've been very blessed to meet some incredible people who just happen to be women and form this circle. And, and just last Friday, we got together and we've almost created our little pod, right? And one of them referred to us and said, actually, you're my posse. And I love that. So now that's our, we've labeled ourselves the posse. Oh, you need a picture. You, yeah. you guys have to all be in some kind of a special outfit and <laughs> I agree. the posse. Yeah, it's got to have the group yeah, pictures. It's that, a must. Um, that you're connected and that they're your people, like you're my people. And I can share more of who I am to you, the good, the bad, the ugly, my fears, what I'm proud of. And you won't take it as I'm bragging or anything, or you won't take it as, oh, that's just Wanda the American who's arrogant. You won't take it that way. You're just going to take it as I give it. And you're going to accept me fully as I am. And to me, you know, that's the family you get to create. You're born into a family, but there's the family you create. And that family has to be there for everyone, because we all have difficult times. But I would say certainly for someone who on multiple dimensions could be characterized as the other, it becomes critical to have those kinds of supports so that you can endure and have the courage to do the work you're doing. Yeah, for strength, for resilience, for support, for inspiration, for camaraderie. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I was just thinking of you and being in a posse. And I was thinking in Germany, it was like you had this little group of friends that was like your posse there. And imagine 
Really, and you know, when Michelle Obama talked about that quite a bit in her book, um, where she talked about her female friends and how they were essential to her success. And I just really love that concept of a group of people that continue to support each other. And instead of just having to put on your armor, you know you've got the armor of your entire posse surrounding you everywhere you go. That's beautifully stated. Beautifully stated. So can you recall a time when you, it's probably been lots because really throughout the whole interview it's been like that, but a time when you felt that your cultural understandings that you thought were normal for everybody were not? I mean, that first incident is a great example, but can you think of another one where you thought things were normal and then you ran up against something and, wait a minute, that's my culture and this is a new cultural experience here that I have to evaluate differently? Yeah, I would say the irony is this is probably not exactly what you're talking about, but this is what I refer to as my aha moment. And I was a cadet at West Point. My parents were in Germany. My roommate, who's phenomenal, she's a FBI agent in the U.S. And she invited me home with her family because my family was overseas. And back then, you really only, you got to go home for Thanksgiving, you got to go home at Christmas, and then the end of the academic year for a few weeks before you went back for some military training. And so it was Thanksgiving, and clearly I couldn't go all the way to Germany and get back in a couple of days, U.S. Thanksgiving. And so she invited me home, and she lived in Richmond, Virginia. And we go, and her family just embraced me. They were beautiful people. I, in fact, refer to her mom and dad as mom kinder and dad kinder, just beautiful people. But the aha I had was arriving and walking into this beautiful home. Her dad was an architect. And uh, her grandmother, who we called Gaga, had her little apartment off on the side. And they had uh, Jack and Jill. I know this now, but at the time I called it the Brady Bunch, right? Because her brothers were in one room and she was in the other room and they shared the bathroom. They had a beautiful uh, living room with a grand piano. And I was just like, wow, people really live like this. Like, it's not just TV. Like, wow. Because it was a completely different world than how we lived. And I remember getting up in the morning and mom kinder would be downstairs in her robe and making breakfast and I mean pancakes. And I was just like, wow, okay, this is a whole different world compared to how my family lives. And we're, my family and I are very, very close. And we give each other the business, but we are very close. And so it wasn't the closeness and how they engaged. It was just it was almost like I was watching a movie and I'd been invited, or maybe better because I love the theater, maybe better it was the theater, right? A show, a live show, and you're invited on stage, right? To be a member and to participate. This is often how people feel when they experience another social class. Oh, absolutely. They were absolutely uh, upper middle class. Mm-hmm. And of course, I came from a working class family. I was just totally blown away that that's the way people lived. And it was the first moment where I was like, oh, wow. Okay, so this just isn't TV. Like, this is for real. Some point after that, it just became comfortable, right? Because I, I started visiting them all the time and spending quite a lot of time with the family. At some point, it's where I realized, oh, wait, this is going to be your life too, because now you're going to be college educated. You're going to have opportunities that your parents did not have, and you're going to have a very different life right? And this is why I believe education is so critical. It it certainly is not the panacea we thought it was. And in many ways, it replicates the social strata, socioeconomic strata that exist. But it is the only opportunity we have, right, 
for social mobility. And I remember every time I came home, I was, of course, sharing my experiences with my whole family. And both my brothers also have university degrees. And so it was the first time I got to realize, like, wow, I'm learning how to be in an entire different world. Uh, the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu refers to it as habitus. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. The collection of your tastes, the things you like to do. And those began to shift, right? The first time I went to a show, and my mom's from New York, I was born in New York, but the first time I went to a show was Evita. And Evita actually came to West Point because we're just outside of New York City. And I really went because it's my first year uh, and you just needed to get out of the barracks. So I was like, I'm going to this show. I'd never been to a show. I didn't know what Evita was. And it was Patti Lapone. I mean, it was just amazing. And the first act ends and I am just, you know, that, that emoji with the eyes wide open. I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, there's still two more segments. Like, how could it get better? Um, and I remember buying the album. I mean, I was just obsessed with the theater after that. Well, I'd never been to the theater before. And I think now with my son, he's been to the theater, he's been to the symphony, he's been to museums. And of course I went to museums with my family, but it's just a whole different experience, right? And those tastes and the things that I like and the kind of food I eat and what I do for enjoyment, it completely shifted. And I have to share one of the funny things that my youngest brother says to me on a regular basis, I love the outdoors. I can't explain it. I love being outside. I like hiking. I love the mountains. The beach is my favorite, but I love the mountains and just being in nature. And even my mom said, why do you like that? There's bugs out there, <laughs> right? I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's not how I see it. It's where I feel deeply connected to the divine. And of course, I took my son hiking as a little guy. You know, I, I adopted him at six and used to go, oh, let's go here. Let's go hiking over here and climbing rocks. And we would just have fun. And my son now lives in Montana and loves you know, hiking, fishing, camping, he does all of that. But it's a clear understanding of how that has shifted. And my youngest brother teases me because he says, I have to tell you, you do know you're the only black person out there hiking, right? (laughs) Right. And so every time I run into a black person on a hike, I take pictures with them, but they have no idea why. And I'm sending them to my brother and say, here, here's two more people, just so you know, right? So, uh, <laughs> you know, this reminds me of a, a young friend that, uh, that we had who, who was with us for almost 10 years of her life. Um, her, her mother was from Ghana and her father was from a, a neighboring country in Africa. I don't remember which one because I never met him. So she was with us all the time. She spent every second weekend with us and everything like that. She called me one day and she said, Marie, I just, I don't know what to do. I've, I've, been, I've been told I have to have braces. And I said, oh, well, you know, that means you'll have straight teeth when you're older, even though it's uncomfortable at the time. She goes, no, no, think about it. Have you ever seen a black girl with braces ever? <laughs> she said, only white geeky guys have braces. Like I would be a, a black geeky girl. I just, I can't be that, that girl. <laughs> but um. I think this thing about social class is really significant because it's easier to traverse almost any other barrier. Social mm-hmm. class is a difficult one, and you have to be able to imagine yourself in different places and responding differently to be able to do it authentically uh, and then know where, where it stops because it's, you know, there's a point where it's never going to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's a great story about seeing that house and imagining and thinking this could be me. And in fact, it is, you know, imagining yourself in a different social class is not something most people can do. 
so yeah, you had that direct experience and it allowed you to continue thinking, I can sail comfortably into this social class experience. It's not going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're almost at the end of the interview. I just wanted to ask you, you know, if you are uh, going for some kind of an interview or you are explaining to somebody how you work best, what would you say to them? What's the best way to work with Dr. Wanda Costin to get the best out of you and you can get the best out of them? Wow, that's a great question. Yeah, I would say first and foremost is to set the path, right? I always want to know where are we going and what are we trying to do? The second thing would be to describe the desired outcome. I'm very outcome driven and I want to know what what does this, and to be able to paint that picture for me, right? What does that look like? What are the outcomes? What are the experiences people are having? And then I typically say, you know, set the boundaries and leave me alone right? Just, just let me go. But they must have the courage and be willing to give me timely feedback, right? Because I want to do well. I want to be the best. And that's not from an arrogance. That's I want to be the best me I can be. And I want to contribute in real and meaningful ways towards some endeavor that I believe in. And if I'm off kilter, I need somebody to tell me that. I had a boss once who I realized when I was at uh, Pepsi and it occurred to me, it was my first management job. And I was like, dude, every Friday, this guy is calling me into his office. So I actually started to resent it. So one Friday I came in and just like a teenager, now that I think about it, I just plopped down in his chair across from his desk. And I'm like, what now? What do I do now? Right. You're always jacking me up about something. And he just looked at me and started laughing. And he goes, Wanda, here's the deal. He goes, look, you're going to be very successful. It's very clear to me. And I hope it's here at Pepsi. But even if it's not, you're going to be successful. And anybody who meets you, you're, you could be the CEO, president of a company one day. He said, all I'm doing is trying to give you the benefit of my experience so that you don't have some of the tough road holes and potholes that I had. And he said something to me that I have never forgotten. He says, let me put it to you this way. I'd rather rein in a thoroughbred than kick a mule. So I'm just trying to keep you between the rails. And once I realized that's what these meetings were, they completely changed. I couldn't wait to get in his office. I couldn't wait to learn. And he'd ask me questions like, okay, so I see where you're going with that now. How could you have done that differently? That would have created the same outcome, but better. Uh, And it shifted how I started to think and experience. And I'm like, okay, this is what mentoring means, right? To give someone that kind of feedback, to care enough about them, to set them on this path and to show them, have them think about different ways of addressing things than their, their standard way of being. So those are the things I would say. First of all, set the path, describe desired outcomes, put me the rails, like let me know where I can operate and then give me really good, timely feedback. Hmm, that's great. Great answer. It would have helped if he would have told you those were what he was doing initially, so you didn't get confusion over that. But <laughs> you do that all the time, though, right? I, I'm sure I do that as well. Like, I do things, and people aren't in my head, but we think they are. Mm-hmm. And we think that our motives are so obvious to people, and they're not, and we forget that people bring uh, all their lived experiences and their life experiences with them and perspectives and worldview. And we forget that people don't see the world. And so we're out engaging and having activities and doing things. And we are perceiving them one way. And someone is perceiving those same activities and actions completely 
different. Right. And only when we realize that, that we can say, okay, I'm not going to take this personally. Let me explain for you what I'm doing and why. And I think that's why the transparency piece comes. I mean, there are, I'm sure there are plenty of faculty here who are not particularly enamored with their dean or doesn't like every decision I make. But many faculty have said, here's a couple of things we do know. You have an incredible work ethic. You strive to be uh, honest. You are fair. And you are remarkably transparent. And for me, while I like some other, you know, I want to be liked and all of those things to be sure. And we love you. They missed that last part. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you can imagine as a leader who has to make tough decisions, it matters that people view me as honest, with a sense of integrity, with an impeccable work ethic, who strives to be fair and transparent. I got to tell you, if all my bosses were that way, sign me up. Totally, me totally. Up. This has been really great, and I, I, I want to thank you so much for your time, for your insights, for the depth of experience and wisdom that you've been sharing. Uh, we are going to uh, put whatever you would like to have in the show notes, any contact information or anything that you would like to promote in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? Uh, no, but I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I have thoroughly enjoyed the discussion and conversation, and I appreciate that you've allowed me to think and reflect on who I am at the, the stage of my life at 57. Well, it's been an honor and a privilege. And thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Wanda Costin is the picture of courage and wisdom. She has transformed challenging life experiences into opportunities for growth by imagining herself in new and different circumstances. Dr. Costin's career trajectory is the result of mental toughness, adaptability, and willingness to collaborate even in challenging social contexts. Her awareness of ways to negotiate race, culture, language, and challenge has evolved, and her resilience is buffered with groups of like-minded friends and constant reflection on her experiences. Articulate, social, and ambitious, Dr. Wanda Costin is an example of how someone who strikes others as an outlier can create her own family and community bonds while forging ahead to new vistas of opportunity. I really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Costin, and I hope you did too. Thank you for joining us on the Culture and Leadership Podcast, and may culture and leadership insights continue to guide and inspire your day. This podcast would not be possible without the expertise of our Culture and Leadership Connections production team. A big thank you and shout out to Mike Kurlander for audio production and editing. To Malvika Kathpal for the show notes. Bernadette Guadiz for online web and social media management and promotions. Celine Bayogo for design. And Kirsten Hoyer for website and branding. Thank you so much. Hey, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. Do you love these insightful and moving interviews published twice monthly for your listening pleasure? You may not know that it costs between $300 and $500 per month to pay for our podcast episodes. Shocking, but true. Well, now you can help support this podcast by showing your love with a little skin in the game real money on the Patreon website. For as little as $5 or as much as $50 a month, you can contribute to keep culture and leadership connections alive and healthy. Your donation is invaluable in helping us connect the hearts and minds of people across cultures and professions for happier and more humane workplaces. 
I know you will call on your inner generosity, knowing that your contribution is a practical demonstration of love and support. Check out the patreon.com slash culture and leadership connections page to see what subscription level feels right for you and find out about the special loyalty perks at each patron level. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N patreon.com slash culture and leadership connections. Thank you for your generosity.